Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? So glad that you're tuning into another episode here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Blessed to be with you. I pray that you're having a fantastic day. I don't know where you're at, how you're listening to this podcast, but I just pray that God will use this time that you and I have together as we explore His Word to not just convict you, but to inspire you to live out the gospel and do the things that He has called you to do without fear. Now, today is Podcast 77. The title is, What is the Condition of Your Heart? Now, if you've been following along in the chronological teaching, you know from the previous podcast, we looked at Jesus in John chapter 10, where he declared, I and the Father are one. And we saw the magnificent claim that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God in the flesh. Now, remember, they sought to kill him. And they were told in John 10, 40 through 42, where he goes to Berea, he goes across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and he remains there. And while Jesus is there, all these people start coming to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. I love that because we oftentimes now at this stage in the chronological teaching have kind of moved past John, and that's like forgotten. But then all of a sudden here in John 10, you see, again, John's influence still being played out. And it says many people believed in him there. So in one sense, when he was on uh, the at temple grounds during the Feast of Dedication, the Jews sought to kill him. But then he leaves and you see many people believe in him. Now we go from John chapter 10 to Luke chapter 13. And we're going to be looking at verses 31 all the way to chapter 14 to verse 35. So we again, another podcast where we have a lot to cover But this is a very significant time because Jesus is invited after he laments over Jerusalem and it's on Sabbath to dine with a ruler of the Pharisees and he proceeds to tell them some of the most powerful parables that you and I need to take heart today. So let's just jump right into Luke chapter 13 verses 31 through 35. The first event is Jesus laments over Jerusalem. Right here in verse 31, it says, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. So now, up to this point, remember, the Jews are trying to kill him. We see the Pharisees attack Jesus. They weren't befriending him, other than uh, an individual like Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But this is a unique little verse here, because there were some Pharisees who still protected Jesus, because they were fond of him. And notice that they referenced to the vicious behavior of Herod Antipas. Now, there was great disdain that the Sanhedrin had for extrajudicial mandates that he did as tetrarch. One commentator says, Herod had been perplexed by our Lord's ministry and was afraid that John the Baptist, whom he murdered, had come back from the dead in Luke chapter 9. In fact, at one point, Herod wanted to meet Jesus so he could see him perform a miracle in Luke 23. But it appears that Herod's heart was getting harder, for now he threatened to kill Jesus. The warning that the Pharisees gave in Luke 13 was undoubtedly true or Jesus would not have answered as he did. So it's just, it's kind of cool to see that there were some Pharisees who were protecting him, but it also points out again, remember the vicious behavior of many of the rulers in that time. So in verse 32, and he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finished my course. 
I love this because here you see Jesus, he calls out an official. He refers to him as a fox. That means you tell that shrewd, cunning, deceitful person. And you think, man, Jesus, you're like laying into this guy and calling him names. No, he's telling it like it is. He's verifying the danger and the threat of Herod. And we know that as, as we just talked about, this was a very dangerous man. But what in the process of talking about the the power that he has on earth, he speaks of his power on earth to resurrect from the dead in three days. I love that. So he's telling them the significance saying, look, I got this in the end. I appreciate your concern. And you do tell that shrewd ruler that he may think that he can try to overpower what God is doing here, but he won't. No one can because God has ordained this. And then in verse 33, he says, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now in this podcast today, and when we look at a lot of the parables and conversations that Jesus has, he uses a lot of hyperbole like he's using here. And what Jesus is getting at is he's reflecting on the many prophets under rulers like Herod who were killed, particularly when you look at Jerusalem, you go back to second Chronicles 24 and Jeremiah 26, but Jesus expresses the resolve here. He says soon enough, he himself will be led out of Jerusalem, right? Where he'll be crucified. And so what Jesus is doing is he's harking back to the same words that he told the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11. Let me read that in verses 47 51. He says, woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So in essence, what Jesus is getting at is he's saying, look, there have been people who have been killed. Uh, Jerusalem is a big hub of that because of proclaiming the words of God. And we're in a phase now where people are trying to reject that and they're trying to silence that. And Jesus says, ultimately, this same place of Jerusalem, the Messiah is going to be crucified and it's going to produce, obviously, as you and I know, salvation to come. But now in verse 34, knowing that's to come, but knowing the state of where Jerusalem is at, they're rejecting the Messiah. Most of them are not even realizing who Jesus is. And so he says in verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her broad under her wings and you were not willing as Jesus considers him giving up his life at some point, you know, he, we're, we're at that, on that phase, we're going to be entering into the Passion Week pretty soon. He's looking at Jerusalem and he's emotional over them because they don't believe in him. And that's why he uses this metaphor, this description of under her wings. He's, ref, he's referring to God's protection over his people. This comes from Psalm 17 and Psalm 91. And yet, despite their hatred, despite their rejection, Jesus is still showing this unconditional love for his people. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're a parent, you're a grandparent, and you look at a son or a daughter or a grandson or a grandchild or a loved one for that matter, and they believe that, that they're saved, that they're going to go to heaven, but they don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, or you have someone in your life who repeatedly continues to reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it burdens us. Now, think about how overwhelmed Jesus was. And so he says in verse 35, he says, Behold, your house, meaning your family, is forsaken. And I tell you, 
you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus then quotes from Psalm 118 verse 26. Now, what's interesting is although in Luke 19 verse 38, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem upon his arrival, they will quote from Psalm 118, but much of this prophecy will be fulfilled when Jesus brings that protection and that reign over Jerusalem at his second coming. You see that in Zechariah 12, 10. During his final week, Jesus will also mention this at the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 30 through 31. And now this phrase that your house will be forsaken or desolate. Now, some commentaries refer to this as a prediction of the coming destruction of the temple in 70 AD. I'm not sure if in fact that is the case, but in this section, the first event in Luke 13, 31 through 35, you see Jesus as he's getting closer, that he's lamenting over the people in Jerusalem, which now leads to our second part in the podcast in Luke chapter 14, verses one through six, where Jesus heals a man with dropsy on the Sabbath. We're told in verse one on, on the Sabbath, when he went to dine, consume food, that is at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, meaning diligently. They were guarding every move uh, within themselves as they interacted with Jesus. Now, it's important to note that when you showed this type of hospitality, particularly on the Sabbath, this was a great deal among the Jews. It was a big custom that they did. It was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of commitment and trust. Remember, Jesus had been invited before by a Pharisee in Luke chapter 7. However, in this setting, it seems like it's a setup. The Pharisees are going to use the Sabbath. They're going to take the compassion of Jesus and the suffrage of this man with dropsy to protect the Sanhedrin so they can get rid of Jesus because he was this famed rabbi that was causing them too much problems. And we're told in verse 2, and behold, there was a man before, literally in Greek, it means this man was right in front of him who had dropsy. Now, dropsy is an excessive accumulation of fluid that's in the tissue of a person's body. Now, this can be a condition that was that may be caused by cancer uh, in the liver, or the you know maybe some type of heart failure or kidney failure. We don't know, but what we do know is if it's any one of those things in that day and age, there is no cure for what this man had. And so either you know they positioned him in the in the seating situation at the ruler of the Pharisee's house to almost kind of set Jesus up to see how he respond to this man in this bad condition, where the man found his way to be with Jesus. I kind of tend to think it's, it's the former, that it's a setup, because here we're told in verse 3, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful? Literally just means obligatory, the oughtness, being in harmony with the law to heal on the Sabbath or not. See, why would Jesus pose this question if it wasn't a setup? Now, at the, this point, remember, Jesus had just previously to this in Luke chapter 13, 10 through 21, he healed a crippled woman on the Sabbath. And remember, the ruler of the synagogue was, was just so upset with Jesus and made it public. Now, leading up to all of this, we see this repeatedly of Jesus healing people on the Sabbath, the man with a withered hand in Mark chapter 3 healing Peter's mother-in-law, Luke chapter 4, the blind man in John chapter 9, as I mentioned before, the woman with disabling spirit, Luke chapter 13, 10 through 17. And so here Jesus is seeing the situation and notice the lawyers and the Pharisees are among him and the ruler of the Pharisee, remember, is the host. And he poses a question, is it lawful? Now remember to have the lawyers there, this is the A game. These are the cream of the crop 
uh, legal analysts. And I love how Jesus poses the question to say, let's see how you guys respond to this, this oughtness, how we can be in harmony with the law when it comes to healing on the Sabbath. Now, another thing that's it's important to point out, remember, as I mentioned, leading up to this, another incident on the Sabbath with this man of dropsy, he's about to heal. Jesus is going to use this as an opportunity on the Sabbath right after the synagogue service that he probably taught at with all these prominent figures that are there who invited all these people who are trying to say, hey, we're going to set up Jesus and all the top-notch legal analysts people are going to be there and we're going to shame this famed rabbi once and for all. And yet, what does he do? He judges the people that are in attendance by posing this direct question and is linked to this phrase, to heal. Now, we know in the audience around this table that not one single Pharisee had the power to heal. But they've known leading up to this what Jesus has done. This all points to God. Yet they can't do anything about it. And so not only does Jesus challenge these experts on the law with the law, but he also points to the powerlessness that they have over Satan and his kingdom and all the diseases and the sicknesses that are taking place. Because in verse 4, it says here that they remain silent. And then then we're told he then took, he grasped, he looked upon the man with dropsy and he heals him and he sent him away. So this plot to trap Jesus, once again, backfires on them. And then in verse five, he says to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? So again, Jesus poses a question to them. He's intentional about these. It's on the Sabbath. He's pointing this out. He asked him from the beginning, is it lawful? And then he's saying, which one of you? So he's taking the law and he's pointing it directly to them and saying, how would you respond to this? In essence, what he's doing is he's showing that you guys are hypocrites rather than care for the people that you, that are among you, like in your sphere of influence, you're using them for your own personal gain and pleasure. They're taking advantage of this man with dropsy just to see what Jesus would do. And of course he heals the man because that is a greater good than him breaking the law because he said that's unlawful to do that. And yet none of them have the ability to heal. Yes, we know that the law said that you can rescue an animal, in this case, falling into a well on the Sabbath. But what Jesus is saying is, isn't the human soul, you guys as a Jew, we believe that we're made in the image of God. Isn't a human more valuable than cattle? So what he's doing is he's reducing this to the religious leaders caring more about animals then human beings were made in the image of God. And again, nothing. In verse six, it says they could not reply because in the Greek, it literally means they were caught in contradiction to these things. So Jesus not only exposed their evil plot, but he also exposes their faulty reasoning and their evil intents. So you would think at this point that Jesus would just give up and say, hey, thanks for the invitation. Get his disciples together and say, we got to get back on the road. Uh, Thanks, but no thanks kind of thing, right? But instead, what he does is he uses this opportunity to proceed down a path of teaching certain parabolical messages. So we're told here now in Luke chapter 14, verse 7 through 14, he's going to give the parable of the feast and he's going to talk about the place of honor. Now, this may not make sense leading up to 
what we just discussed when you talked about him healing a person of dropsy. But this leads into it nicely because the point what Jesus was saying earlier is you care more about the law than you care about humans. Why? Because he's going to talk about your place of honor means more to you than anything. So in verse 7, Luke writes, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. That just means the best reclining seating area in the middle part of the couch. Saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Least someone more distinguished, more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame or disgrace to take the lowest place. All right. So a couple things to look at here before we proceed through the parable. Number one, it was a high honor in that culture to be invited by, you know, uh, this person who is this leader this ruler, the Pharisees, obviously, he'd invite distinguished guests to come as a, as a way to kind of reflect his power, especially when you had a popular rabbi who would be coming through speaking at these local synagogues. Again, Jesus was a famed rabbi. They didn't like him, but they're using this opportunity. So Jesus, therefore, is going to use his opportunity to turn around and to condemn them. And so after healing the man with dropsy and exposing the hypocrisy and the foiled plot of the religious leaders, he's going to teach them this parable and expose the most basic problem among all of them. And what do you think it is? It's pride. This phrase, place of honor, the closer, as I mentioned, that you sat to the host, the more significant and prominent you were. And that was a reflection, by the way, friends, how many of these Jews view themselves to the kingdom of heaven. They believed that their status on earth reflected that to come. One commentary writes, their concern over their position around the table highlighted their problem. They found him too humble a figure to be the Messiah. That was the real problem, not the imagined breach of the Jewish law on which they had focus, end quote. So I like that because in this setting, they didn't care about sitting with Jesus. They cared about how close they were to the person who was the host. So they completely abandoned their approach as a Jew to the coming Messiah. They didn't see him as that. Not only that, they were so fixated on Jesus breaking the Sabbath and not about the kingdom to come. And verse 10, it says, but when you are invited, you go and you sit in the lowest places so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this was a phrase that Jesus used often. You see that in Luke chapter 9, verse 24, Luke 13, verse 30, Luke chapter 17, verse 33, Luke chapter 18, verse 14, Matthew chapter 23, 11 through 12. This actually comes from what Proverbs 25, 6 through 7 says, where it said, do not put yourself forward to the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here than to be put lower in the presence of the noble. So Jesus is calling out their pride. He's calling out this false status that they have, that they believe that how they live on earth will be reflective of how they're going to live in heaven, and yet they can't even recognize the Messiah. They don't even really know God. Their self-exaltation is more important, and they have no humility. So in verse 12, it says, He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. 
for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I love this because in verse 12, it says, then he turns to the man who invited him. So more likely, this is the host. This is the ruler of the Pharisees. Now, the conversation that Jesus has with him, this was a very common Semitic discourse. As I told you earlier, Jesus is going to be using hyperbole throughout. And once again, he's using it to relay an important lesson. So this is very common in that culture. So we in our Western mind, we have to think as a first century Jew. What Jesus is getting at is he's saying to to them using hyperbole, you think you're showing acts of kindness, but you're doing it as a favor. That's not charity. True charity is reaching out to people who are less fortunate. A true follower of God is taking the things that God has blessed you with and blessing others in return. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 1 through 18. That's what he talked about. And then he tags the, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He's referencing to the judgment to come in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Now the the Jews feared that. And so he's reminding them, don't forget, you guys are living in your pleasures today, but one day you'll have to give an account. One commentary writes, Jesus applies the principle above in a fascinating way. If his host really cares about honor from God, he should invite the poor and the powerless who can never repay him in life. How is this an application? Simply in that God is concerned for the poor. He will exalt the person who cares for the helpless rather than the powerful who can reward here and now. See, that's the the focus that Jesus is putting forth to these religious leaders, but he's not finished. Now we lead into the third parable in Matthew 14, verses 15 through 24, where it says, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, finally, you get some feedback, right, from Jesus's audience. And this response is kind of weird in, in, a, in a way, because in one sense, it's like the guest was understanding that Jesus was probably talking about the kingdom of God to come. And it was a reference from Isaiah 25, six through eight. So we know we have a lot of religious leaders there. We have lawyers there, the Pharisees, right? And so they're referencing Isaiah 25, these are educated people of the law of the Old Testament that we would refer to as Christians. But perhaps the man also spoke up this way to kind of ease the tension and, you know, maybe believed in the coming marriage supper of the lamb uh, to come. And so he was excited about it. We don't know. But Jesus then responds to him in verse 16, says, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many, meaning in advance, he sends out these invitations. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. So what Jesus is now doing here is he's going a little bit deeper when he's going to be referring to the kingdom of God. He's referring to it as this great feast that's announced by this very prominent figure. And the reason why Jesus is teaching this parable about the kingdom is to stun the guests because what he's going to get at now is saying, look, go back to your pride, go back to how you guys interpret the law, go back to your places of honor. Now I'm going to go directly into the area of the descendants of Abraham. You believe because Abraham is your father. So keep that in mind as we read through this parable. So now in verse 18, he says, but they all alike begin to make excuses, meaning they begin to refuse or to reject. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Verse 20, and another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. 
Okay, so let's make a few observations of what's going on here. Now, remember, this is a very elaborate banquet. It's a great banquet because it points out to the high-ranking status of the person who's sending out these invitations. Now, keep in mind that Jesus is literally and physically in a room that's reflective of this parable. And people start making these excuses as to why they couldn't come. So the first person says, I've bought a field and I must go to inspect it. Now, in every one of these excuses is a behavior of selfishness, that they're consumed about the world, that they have more important things, if you will. But what's so foolish about this man, number one, it's insulting, remember, in that culture, you re- you receive the invitation, you've accepted the invitation, and then upon arrival, you decide, oh, I have more important things to do. But in this case, when you look at the first excuse, not only did this man care more about his status and his riches than he did about his friends, about these others, and not only that, but who buys a field without inspecting it? This man says that he needs to go inspect a field that he already purchased, and we already know that banquets in that time started before sunset, so basically the guy's going to go out during the dark to inspect a piece of land, so that's a foolish excuse. Now, the second man's excuse about that I bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go examine them is is the same thing. It exposes his greedy heart and his foolishness at the same time because nobody invests in livestock without making sure that they're fit to do the work. And then when we look at the third excuse, the man says that he's now married. Now, we know that marriages were planned way in advance. So if this man had committed to be a part of this great banquet, He would have known of the conflict, therefore he would not have invited himself, say that he could come. And it shows a lack of commitment. That's the point in all of this that Jesus is getting at, is there's a lack of commitment. So that's why in verse 21 he says, So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. So Jesus continues down this parable and says, But that's not the end. People, of course, were thinking in that culture as they're listening around the table, man, how insulting that is, because it was. But it's not the end of the banquet. You think, well, I guess that banquet's ruined. No one's going to come. No one of the distinguished guests. No. He says that the master tells his servant to go out there. Now, this in itself was even more insulting, thinking, how pathetic is this man? But again, this man, this distinguished man who invited these people to be part of this banquet, he was rejected. This was grounds of termination upon the relationship. And rather than end it like this, the master extends a decree. He puts out a decree to invite the poor and the people with disabilities. He was extending a gesture of grace. The lowly class, remember, in that time, they were seen as sinful, wretched, and ceremonially unclean. So Jesus is pointing out the grace that this master has, he was pointing out that he himself, Jesus himself, is this master who is extending grace as he did to this person with dropsy. And all these distinguished guests in here are making all these excuses of rejecting God's grace. And so in verse 22, and the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So here, as Jesus concludes this other parable, 
he shows that the host extends his invitation to the travelers, to the Gentiles. So now this parable is getting very offensive to these distinguished guests that are Pharisees and lawyers. But Jesus's message reigns loud and clear, my friends. You accept his invitation to dine with him if you want to have eternal life. If you reject that invitation, you will not have eternal life. And so when you look at the nation of Israel, they are like those people who made excuses. Warren Wiersbe, in his great commentary in reference to this passage, he says, quote, The Jews pictured their future kingdom as a great feast with the patriarchs as the honored guests. And Jesus used this picture to illustrate the importance of accepting God's invitation to salvation's supper. Salvation is a feast, not a funeral. Everything we need has already been provided. All we must do is come and accept the invitation and be filled. So this concludes this engagement, if you will, this time that Jesus uses to not only rebuke, but to cry out. Remember, he lamented with Jerusalem. And so now he's literally sitting with the the religious leaders of Jerusalem and he gives them opportunity about the kingdom of God to come, their pride, but for them to be broken and to accept this invitation. Now we transition to the last event and this is found in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. We don't know how long it's been since Jesus left this feast with the religious leaders, but we're told now here in verse 25 that great crowds accompany Jesus and he turned and he says to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate or disregard or to love less, that's what that means, his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, before I finish out the remaining of this portion in Luke chapter 14, I need to kind of provide some insight as to why now Luke records this particular thing about the cost of discipleship after what we just talked about at the feast. And again, I think that they're they're linked. Jesus up to that point, remember, had been giving them an invitation, but they had been rejecting it because their position of power was more influential in their lives. They cared more about that than humbling themselves and receiving God's grace. And so now he takes it a step further where he's looking at the crowd. He's looking at followers of him and saying, what are you willing to give up for me? And that's what he's talking about. So when he says, you cannot be my disciple if you're not willing to even give up your own family, not, not to hate them in a vengeful way, in an unforgiving way, meaning you need to love me more than you love anyone. If you want to be my pupil, if you want to be my disciple, a learner in my teaching, as he's drawing member closer to Jerusalem, he's emphasizing commitment because he's committed to give up his life. And so he's, he's requiring his disciples by using, again, once again, hyperbole to drive that home. Now, remember, a disciple of Christ is not to be like those guests who refuse the invitation at the banquet in Luke 14, 15 through 24. That's what he's getting at. So he's picking up the pieces from that. And that's one thing I love about Jesus is a lot of times when he's teaching directly to, in this case, the Pharisees, he takes a lot of that and teaches his disciples and uses it as an opportunity. He's saying to them, you're not to love yourself more than you love me. But not only that, but in verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear, meaning whoever doesn't pick or lift up or support a burden of his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. So not only is he talking about disregarding your family, that's not enough. He also points out that you need to be willing to die. So you're, you're to give up your place of authority. You're not to think yourself as a big shot. You're not to have anything in the way of the relationship between you and me 
And not only that, but the cost of discipleship is you have to be willing to give up your life. Now, what's interesting in this phrase that Jesus uses about the cross, one commentary writes, when the Roman Empire crucified a criminal or captive, the victim was often forced to carry his cross part of the way to the crucifixion site. Carrying his cross through the heart of the city was supposed to be a tacit admission that the Roman Empire was correct in the sentence of death imposed on him, an admission that Rome was right and he was wrong. So when Jesus enjoined his followers to carry their crosses and follow him, he was referring to a public display before others that Jesus was right and that the disciples were following him even to their deaths. This is exactly what the religious leaders refused to do. So then Jesus transitions and he gives two illustrations to draw out this point. He says in verse 28, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king? going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Okay, so let's look at some insight as to why Jesus provides these two illustrations about building a watchtower and a king contemplating war to emphasize the cost of discipleship. Well, the first thing, the watchtower, has to do with the foundation that denotes strength. When you think of a worker who goes to build something, they have to have the strength, the skill, and the ability to do it. If they don't, that's pitiful. So likewise, Jesus is telling those accompanying him to count the cost before planning to build a life with Christ. You have to be willing to do it. Now, obviously, we can't do it in and of ourselves, but you don't just try to put it together without considering the cost, but in even a greater cost now, a greater scenario as a king contemplating war. I mean, if you think about it, how foolish would the king be to declare war without assessing his army's size and ability? Likewise, when you and I look at our relationship with Christ, when you and I count the cost, if you will, we are to take that same type of measure. Now, every time if we're being honest with ourselves, it's never like, well, I guess in the end, Jesus seems to make better sense. No, we see the eternal value and weight of it. Because notice in verse 33, Jesus says, so therefore any of you who does not renounce, meaning anyone who does not forsake, who does not leave your possessions and pursue me cannot be my disciple. So he's saying, you guys have to say goodbye to that. You got to count the cost. You can't have anything. If you want to be used by the Lord, you cannot have other idols. The condition of your heart is what matters here, not your actual possessions. In verse 34, Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus ends this lesson on the costs of discipleship by using salt. You see, salt was used to preserve not only good things, but also was used to prevent bad things from growing. So a disciple who's unwilling to surrender their life, all of their life, that is, to God, is someone who is foolish. They have not count the cost. And like salt that has lost its saltiness is not beneficial. It's no good. 
So my friends, as I end this podcast, and as I was convicted going through this, I pray you have been as well. You have to look at your life. If you care more about your position of power, if you care more about what people think about you, if you are rejecting the invitation of God, I do pray that today will be the day of salvation for you. But to my brothers and sisters in Christ who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, make sure that you look at your life and say, are you counting the cost? Are you doing the things that God has called you to do? Are you being obedient? Or are you being disobedient? What kind of Christian are you? What is the condition of your heart? We have to, my friends, take spiritual inventory at times, like 2 Corinthians 13 talks about. We need to examine our faith. And so I leave you with this thought, like Jesus told us here in verse 34 of Luke chapter 14 and verse 35. When it comes to salt in your life, are you preserving good things? And at the same time, are you using salt to prevent bad things from growing in your life? What is the condition of your heart? I pray that you would take time to seek the Lord in that. And I pray that you would go before God and you get right with him. Thank you for listening, my friends. I love you. And until next time, keep standing strong. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the word of God.